Welcome to Scripture Uncovered, a podcast on the Bible brought to you by Logos Bible Study and LogosBibleStudy.com. Now, here's your host, Dr. Bill Creasy. Hello, gang. Bill Creasy here with this week's episode of Scripture Uncovered. This past Monday, we celebrated the Feast of the Transfiguration of the Lord. The feast remembers when Jesus took his inner circle of disciples, Peter, James, and John, to a high mountain. And there, in the presence of Moses and Elijah, Jesus was transfigured. Literally, metamorphosed, like a caterpillar to a butterfly. As the voice of God says, This is my beloved Son, listen to him. I've always been fascinated by this story. It appears in all three synoptic gospels, Matthew 17, verses one through eight, Mark 9, verses two through eight, and Luke 9, verses 28 to 36. And it marks a turning point, both in Jesus' public ministry and in his identity as the Son of God. Listen to the story as we have it in the earliest gospel, the gospel according to Mark. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became dazzling white, such as no fuller on earth could bleach them. Then Elijah appeared to them, along with Moses, and they were conversing with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus in reply, Oh, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He hardly knew what to say. They were so terrified. Then a cloud came, casting a shadow over them, and then from the cloud came a voice. This is my beloved son, Listen to him. Suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone but Jesus alone with them. Now, to understand the story fully, we need to look closely at the story that immediately precedes the transfiguration. In Mark's gospel, Jesus' identity is a major theme. For the characters in the story and us the readers. In the first verse of Mark's opening chapter, the narrator states plainly, beginning the gospel of Jesus Christ, Son of God. Although most translations read, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the opening definite article, the, is absent in the original Greek. The sentence begins with the word arche, beginning, like archaeology, the study of beginnings. Grammatically, it's an anarthrous construction, an introductory sentence without its expected opening definite article, transforming the sentence from a statement to a proclamation, a dramatic announcement, a sudden trumpet blast on a quiet afternoon. And with that proclamation, we the readers, know definitively from the very start precisely who Jesus is, the Son of God. 
And we're not the only ones. In Mark 1, starting at verse 21, we witness Jesus driving an unclean spirit, a demon, out of a possessed man at the synagogue in Capernaum. When Jesus confronts this spirit, a voice from deep within the man cries out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Well, apparently, along with us, the demons know who Jesus is too. Yet, the crowds who witness this dramatic event at Capernaum are puzzled about Jesus' identity. What is this, they ask? A new teaching and with authority. Why, he even commands the unclean spirits and they obey him. And Jesus' disciples question his identity too. When Jesus calms the storm on the Sea of Galilee in Mark 4 at verse 41, they exclaim, Who is this? Why, even the wind and the waves obey him. Now, we know who Jesus is because we were told who he is in Mark's opening verse. And the demons know who Jesus is. But Jesus' disciples don't know who he is. By offering information about Jesus' identity to us, the readers, while withholding the same information from the disciples and the crowds, Mark's narrator creates enormous tension within the story. As we move through Mark's gospel, and Jesus performs one miracle after another, one remarkable teaching after another. Evidence of who he is mounts, and so does the tension within the story. At some point, we, the reader, want to grab the disciples by the scruff of the neck, shake them, and say, don't you get it, you blockheads? This is the Messiah, the Son of God. Well, as the evidence continues to mount, Jesus takes his disciples to Caesarea Philippi, about 40 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. In Jesus' day, Caesarea Philippi was home of the Temple of Pan, the Greek god of nature, fertility, sex, and, well, the overall good time. Only one thing happens at Caesarea Philippi. Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? They reply, well, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. But Jesus asks, who do you say I am? The you here is grammatically plural. Jesus asks it of his disciples as a group. But Peter replies on behalf of the group, you are the Messiah. Well, finally they've gotten it right. Jesus then leads them for six days up a high mountain. Now tradition holds that the mountain is Mount Tabor in the Jezreel Valley, about 70 miles south of Caesarea Philippi. In fact, today there's a lovely Franciscan church atop Mount Tabor. 
the Church of the Transfiguration. We've celebrated Mass there on many occasions. But I would argue that the high mountain is farther north of Caesarea Philippi, Mount Hermon, a mountain cluster that straddles the border between Syria and Lebanon, with its summit towering 9,232 feet above sea level. Snow-capped year-round, it's the highest mountain in that part of the world. And it's the primary source of water for Israel. Mount Hermon's three major runoff streams, the Dan, Banyas, and Hasbani rivers, form the Jordan River, which flows south into the Sea of Galilee. In a very important sense, Mount Hermon is the source of life in Israel. And one always meets the gods on a high mountain. Think of Mount Sinai, where Moses met with God, or Mount Olympus, where the Greek gods dwelt. In any case, it's there on the mountain that Jesus is transfigured. What is it precisely that happens there? Now, recall the story of the prophet Elisha in 2 Kings chapter 6, when Elisha is spending the night in Dothan and the army of Aram surrounds the city to kill Elisha. <laughs> it's like the final scene in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid when Paul Newman and Robert Redford are holed up in a shack in Bolivia and they wake up in the morning only to find themselves surrounded by the entire Bolivian army. In Dothan, Elisha's servant wakes up and steps outside only to find that he and Elisha are surrounded by the entire army of Aram. Elisha's servant bolts back into the room and in a panic says to Elisha, Alas! Now, does anyone actually say, Alas? Well, Alas! What shall we do, my lord? And Elisha replies, Do not be afraid. Our side outnumbers theirs. And then he prayed, O Lord, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the servant, and he saw that the mountainside was filled with fiery chariots and horses around Elisha. Whoa! The army of Aram is surrounded by a huge army of heavenly chariots and horses of fire. When Elisha prays, God parts the veil, as it were, allowing Elisha's servant to see beyond the mundane, to see a reality hidden from human sight. This reminds me of Plato's allegory of the cave in Book 7 of his Republic. There, Plato tells us to imagine a cave in which men are seated on chairs facing the back wall of the cave. Behind them is a trail crossing the cave parallel to them, with people traveling along the trail. Beyond the trail 
is a fire burning bright. The people seated in the chairs and facing the back wall of the cave know nothing about the trail behind them or about the fire behind the trail because they're facing in the wrong direction. What they see is shadows passing by on the cave wall. And to them, the shadows are their reality. They never turn their heads and look behind them to see the actual objects that are creating the shadows. The shadows are their perceived reality. The objects beyond them are the actual reality. Well, that's much what we have in the Elisha story. When Elisha's servant, what Elisha's servant sees is his perceived reality. The actual reality appears when God parts the shimmering gossamer veil that separates the two. Now, this idea of a greater reality than that which we see ripples all throughout Scripture. Recall building the tabernacle in the second half of Exodus. God commands Moses, and I quote, to make a sanctuary for me that I may dwell in the Israelites' midst. According to all that I show you regarding the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of its furnishings, so shall you make it. That's Exodus 25, verses 8 and 9. Moses is to build the tabernacle precisely as God commands, right down to the very last detail. Why? Over in Hebrews chapter 7, our author has been speaking of Melchizedek, the mysterious priest of God in Genesis 14. And here in Hebrews 8, verses 1 through 5, he says, The main point of what has been said is this. We have such a high priest as Melchizedek, who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister of the sanctuary and of the genuine tabernacle that the Lord, not man, has set up. Now, every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, the necessity for this one, Christ, also to have something to offer. If then he, Christ, were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are already those who offer gifts according to the law. They, the priests at the tabernacle, worship in a copy and shadow of the heavenly sanctuary. Now let me read that again. They worship in a copy and shadow of the heavenly sanctuary. As Moses was warned when he was about to erect the tabernacle, for God says, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Well, like the shadows on the cave wall in Plato's allegory of the cave, the tabernacle built by Moses in Exodus is but a shadow of the genuine reality hidden behind the veil. 
And that's much what we have, I think, in the Transfiguration. Peter, James, and John, the other disciples, and the crowds, all see Jesus in the flesh, in the fullness of his humanity. But at the Transfiguration, God parts the shimmering gossamer veil and allows Peter, James, and John to see the genuine reality of Jesus, to see the fullness of his divinity as the Son of God. It is a stunning moment that Peter never forgets. Turn over with me to 2 Peter, St. Peter's final letter to us, as he sits on death row in the Mamertine prison in Rome, awaiting his execution. Now this is over 30 years after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. 30 years have passed. And now I read to you from 2 Peter 1, 16 to 18. We, that is, Peter, James, and John, did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when that unique declaration came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, my beloved, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves, Peter, James, and John, we heard this voice come from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. And notice, too, that in the story of the Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah appear with Jesus. We read in Deuteronomy 19, verse 15, that two or three witnesses are required for a testimony to be valid. Moses, the one through whom gave the law, and Elijah, the greatest of the prophets, are the two witnesses. When God says, in their presence, and in the presence of Peter, James, and John, this is my beloved son, listen to him, God validates Peter's confession of faith at Caesarea Philippi in the presence of two credible witnesses, Moses and Elijah. <laughs> and you can't get more credible than that. Once Jesus, Peter, James, and John leave the mountain, Jesus' identity is firmly established. From this point on in Mark's Gospel, the question is no longer, who is this man? Now the question is, what does it all mean? What are the implications for Peter, James, and John? And what are the implications for us, the reader? For we know who Christ is and who we have chosen to follow. What are the implications of Jesus being the Son of the living God. Now that, my friends, is something we should all ponder. You're listening to Scripture Uncovered, brought to you by Logos Bible Study and LogosBibleStudy.com. Don't forget, you can now support the show on Patreon. 
Go to patreon.com scripture to find out more about all the great benefits for supporting Scripture Uncovered. Now, back to the show. Here's Dr. Creasy. Welcome back, gang. I'd like to turn now to your Bible questions. The first comes from Randy in Minnesota. And Randy writes, God created Adam and Eve, and they were Jewish. God had Noah build the ark. Noah placed his wife and three sons and their wives on the ark with all the animals two by two. Everyone else drowned, leaving Noah's and his family alive. And they were Jewish. Doesn't that mean that everyone on earth now has some Jewish heritage? Well, let me untangle this one. God created Adam and Eve, and they were Jewish. No, that's not correct. God created Adam and Eve, and they were human. Humanity. We don't have Jewish people until after Abraham. God chose Abraham to be a unique person in Scripture, a unique person in the plan of salvation, and Abraham had two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of 12 sons who became the founders of the 12 tribes of Israel. Jacob's fourth son, Judah, becomes the one from his line will come the Messiah. A Jew is technically one from the tribe of Judah. Now, as Israel continues on in its history, in 930 BC, the nation Israel splits in half in civil war. The northern kingdom becomes the nation of Israel with its capital at Samaria. The southern kingdom becomes Judah with its capital at Jerusalem. After the history is over, after the northern kingdom goes into captivity in Assyria in 722 and the southern kingdom into captivity in Babylon in 586, when Cyrus the great king of Persia in 539 defeats Babylon and allows the captive people to go home, they go home back to their homeland, which is then referred to as Judah. So all those coming from Judah dating back to Judah himself, son number four, and then back to Abraham, they become the Jews. Now, Abraham also had another son, Ishmael. And Ishmael also has 12 sons. Son number two becomes the founder of the Arab people. Son number two of the 12 boys. So we have a split with Abraham. One line goes through Isaac to Jacob to Judah and onward. The other line goes to Ishmael and to his sons and to the Arab peoples. So we have the split at that point. I hope that clarifies it a little bit. Thank you, Randy. Good question. The second question is from Russ in Redondo Beach in California. And he writes, when Jesus came to earth, since he was fully God and fully man, did he give up or lay aside his divinity while on earth? 
Well, Ross, that is a really good question. When we open the Gospel according to John, in the prologue, we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and lived among us. God took on flesh and stepped into the world as a person. When he did so, did he leave his divinity behind? That's your question. And I think Paul answers that question very well in Philippians. Paul writes his epistle to the church in Philippi sometime between AD 60 and 62 while he's in Rome. And in Philippians, he writes in chapter 2, beginning at verse 6, uh, verse 5, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So we have this great hymn of praise in which we find Jesus defined as God enfleshed. But when he stepped into the world, he left not his divinity behind, but the prerogatives of his divinity behind and became one of us. Not just one of us ordinary people, but the lowest of the low. At the very bottom, a crucified criminal. And then he scooped up humanity and he raised us back up with him. I think that's a fabulous section in Philippians, and I think it answers the question fairly well. God did not lay, uh, Jesus did not lay aside his divinity, but he did lay aside the prerogatives of his divinity. Our third question, and the final one, is from Jennifer in Artesia, California. And she writes, I enjoy your podcast and I've learned so much from it and would like to submit a question. Well, thank you, Jennifer. I appreciate that. And here's the question. If people who lived and died before Christ went to Sheol because neither heaven nor hell were open, what became of Sheol once heaven and hell were opened? Is Sheol purgatory? Well, I think we need to address this question in a broader historical sense. In the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, Sheol is the place, well, it's a place of darkness, uh, a place of uh, shadows, a place to which all the dead go, whether righteous or unrighteous. Sheol, sometimes translated the grave. In the Psalms, we hear that. David writes, who can praise you from the grave? This place, Sheol, 
It's an amorphous place. It's not very clearly defined. And that's the case all the way through the Hebrew Scriptures. Now, sometimes, under some circumstances, some people may be able to contact these shades in Sheol. That's what the Witch of Endor story is about, when the Witch of Endor contacts the shade of Samuel for King Saul. Personally, I think it was fake all the way along, but the concept is there. Sheol, this amorphous place of the dead. Now we have this not simply in scripture, but we have it in other classical literature from the same period. For example, in Homer's The Iliad, I'm sorry, Homer's The Odyssey, in book 11, Odysseus journeys to the land of the dead. And he finds that as he enters the land of the dead, a dark and gloomy place where the shades of the dead are, are like bats flitting back and forth, squeaking and gibbering, he learns that if the shades taste blood, they become sentient. So we read in the Odyssey, book 11. Odysseus takes the sacrifices of a bull and a lamb, and he kills them, filling a trench with their blood. And we read, I took the victims over the trench, I cut their throats, and the dark blood flowed in, and up out of Erebus they came. That is, the shades flocking toward me now, the ghosts of the dead and gone, brides and unwed youths and old men who had suffered much and girls with their tender hearts freshly scarred by sorrow and great armies of battle dead stabbed by bronze spears, men of war still wrapped in bloody armor, thousands swarming round the trench from every side, unearthly cries blanching terror gripped me. So all these shades of the dead are coming to drink of the blood. One of the shades is Odysseus's mother. Well, Odysseus left for the Trojan War nearly 20 years earlier, and he's not been back home since. He sees his mother. He offers her blood to drink. She drinks it, and she becomes sentient. And Odysseus says to his mother, Mother, how did you come to be here? Was it a tragic accident? Was it some lingering disease? And she says, no, it was. It wasn't. It was neither. It was my longing for you, my shining Odysseus, you and your quickness, you and your gentle ways that tore away my life that had been so sweet. Odysseus' mother died of a broken heart because of Odysseus. And he discovers that there in Sheol, in the land of the dead. Once the effects of the blood wear off, his mother flits back away like a squeaking, gibbering bat. Well, that concept of Sheol dominates the Hebrew scriptures. Only later does it begin to morph, begin to change, into something more distinct, a place where the righteous go to one place, the unrighteous go to another, what we would think of as heaven and hell. Recall the story of 
Lazarus and Dives. Lazarus had, uh, was the very poor man who was happy to eat the scraps of food beneath the rich man's table. The rich man, Laz uh, Dives, he didn't care about the poor at all. Well, in the end, they both die. Lazarus goes to Abraham's bosom, a nice place, a place of reward for being a good person. But Dives went to the other place, a place of fire, a place of torment. And oddly, they can see each other from where they are, which makes you wonder, is part of being a part of the blessedness of the saved witnessing the damnation of the unsaved. Well, this idea, this idea of life after death in some place, finds its greatest concrete example in Dante's Divine Comedy, where Dante journeys through the Inferno, Hell, the Purgatorio, Purgatory, and Paradiso, or Paradise. This idea of the shifting landscape of, of the dead. The very first academic article that I wrote and had published was on that topic. It was titled, The Shifting Landscape of Hell, and it was published in a publication back in the 70s called Comitatus. If you Google it online, you'll find it. So I hope that answers the question. Good being with you this week, gang. I look forward to it next week, and in the meantime, have a blessed week. Keep me in your prayers if you would. Thank you. You've been listening to Scripture Uncovered, brought to you by Logos Bible Study and LogosBibleStudy.com. To submit your text or audio questions, email us at online at LogosBibleStudy.com. That's online at LogosBibleStudy.com. And check out Scripture Uncovered on Patreon, a great service that allows you to support the show so that we can continue bringing valuable programs to you week by week. There are all kinds of benefits for supporting the show, including free online courses in the Logos Online Classroom. Go to patreon.com, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash scripture to learn more. Patreon.com slash scripture. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.